Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. Um, more importantly, today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Simon Atkinson. Um, he's a teaching officer at the University of Cambridge, um, and he has uh, produced, um, um, that's his day job, uh, but he moonlights as a, <laughs> as a scholar uh, on Krishna Acharya. Um, uh, we'll be talking, of course, about uh, his uh, new 2020 Equinox um, publication, uh, Krishna Acharya and Kundalini, the origins and coherence of his position. Simon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here. Yes, yes, yes. So, um, so I, you know, I can relate a little bit insofar, uh, I can relate to your situation insofar as you work uh, for or at a university, yeah. but your research isn't funded. So for, for uh, wow. 10 years, I worked at the University of Toronto School of Continuing Studies, teaching mm-hmm. um, non-credit courses to adult learners. But of course, that does not fund my research projects, etc. And currently, I have a teaching affiliation with the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies. But technically, research-wise, I'm an independent scholar, much as yourself. So I can understand why you want to disambiguate. Um, um, so then, uh, tell us a little bit about that. How do you? What was your process like? How did you fit time in to get this book done while you had a full-time job at the university? Okay. Well, I guess. I guess the process for this book goes back an awful long way, well before when I was working for the University of Cambridge. I've been here since 2009, but I guess the ideas for this book go right back to the 20th century. Uh, So I read about uh, Krishnamacharya's teachings on Kundalini in his son's book, T.K. V. Dizikachar's book, uh, The Heart of Yoga. And that had teachings on Kundalini that were very different from what anybody else seemed to say. So I investigated that right back in the 1990s, uh, just when I was finishing uh, my PhD in a completely unrelated subject. Uh, And then since then, uh, being a practitioner of yoga in that tradition, I've attended many different teaching events with prominent teachers in that tradition. And I've just been interested in that topic, so drawn towards events that were related to that topic. And I've just been investigating the subject for an awful long time. So I started learning, I started practicing yoga in 1991. I started learning Sanskrit in 2001. uh, And that was when I was a journalist. And then I went back into academia to teach English for academic purposes and and, uh, academic skills. Uh, so that I could continue learning my Sanskrit, and it's led towards this project. So I guess many of the students that I teach have a sort of systematic approach to how they put together a research project. They typically start by looking at the literature, identifying a gap in the knowledge or a problem that needs to be solved. They devise a methodology to solve that problem, and then they go and do the research. So my, my research just evolved more organically from my interest in the subject, 
I eventually decided, well, it might be a good idea if I write a paper about this. But then the paper became bigger and bigger and turned into an 80,000 word uh, academic book. So it's just evolved over the years. Uh, being being uh, a member of staff in the University of Cambridge gave me certain privileges, like the use of the university library, which was absolutely essential. Uh, and I know various people in the university, like the Sanskrit lecturers in Asian and Middle Eastern studies. Uh, so I've gate crashed various events over the years, but I, I've been moonlighting, as you say, doing this work in my spare time. Uh, I, I think. Before the, before the pandemic lockdowns occurred, I was already socially distancing for a few, a few years before then, uh, writing my book. So I just continued through the pandemic and eventually it actually came out about two weeks ago. Um, <laughs> so many interesting parallels uh, between our journeys insofar as uh, one, um, uh, I force myself to do proposals when I need to uh for uh, for uh, you know for the couple of books uh, that i have out there's one that i have in the works um actually no i have sorry i have a third book out but it's a it's a story a book about um the stories behind the yoga poses which we'll talk about actually later in the podcast because i find it fascinating that in that in in, in many of the retellings of the of uh, the puranic tales i actually draw on uh tantric ideas of kundalini as well um i'm not sure that krishnamachari would approve but we could talk about that um <laughs> Uh, um, uh, um, but you know for me it's uh, something calls something calls um, a topic an, an interest and um, uh, you know I, I can sense where the gold is right where you know I'm going in that cave hmm. not you know and either I've internalized it or I'm completely ignorant of it but it's like I don't even process where this fits necessarily into a body of literature or or the central argument I sort of know what I want to write about and then the rest comes with a fair bit of squinting and uh midnight oil so mm. to speak so so I can really um <laughs> I can relate to your style of having an interest that draws you more than a structured proposal yeah. um now Okay, so Krishnamacharya on Kundalini, you know, that is what the book's about. It's not a misnomer. Um, how would you overarchingly characterize um, why this is an interesting topic? What does Krishnamacharya have to say about Kundalini? Actually, uh, uh, while I, I'm confident that most of our audience would have at least some idea of who Krishnamacharya was, perhaps uh, the appropriate first question is who is Krishnamacharya? And then and you can segue uh, at your leisure to, you know, why is it of interest what he has to say on Gundalini? Okay, well, T. Krishnamacharya was born in Karnataka in South India, and he lived for about 100 years, died in 1989. So he was very much a Vaishnava. He was brought up in the Sri Vaishnava tradition of South India, and that was very important in shaping the whole of his life. Uh, he is perhaps the most influential yoga teacher of the 20th century, arguably, uh, because he taught so many very prominent yoga teachers. So Iyengar, uh, uh, Patabi Joyce, uh, and then his son T.K. Vidyaskachar, Sri Ramaswamy, A.G. Mohan, Indra Devi also earlier on. So there are a number of very, very, very influential yoga teachers that have been trained by Krishnamacharya originally. So I think he's, he's hugely influential on a, on a global scale. 
and perhaps second to none in his, in his influence. So it's very important to understand really where he was coming from. So on, on Kundalini, then I think, well, Krishnamacharya has a number of quite distinct, quite distinctive features to his teaching. So the things that have been most investigated are his approach to asanas. So he, he sequenced asanas into so-called vinyasas, which I've been told were actually a reflection of Hindu ritual, sort of building up to a climax and then coming down from a climax. So that's been, that's been researched quite a lot. And I believe there's still research going on into exactly where his influence came from in that. So I think his teaching on asanas and also, I guess, pranayama and meditation fitted into that vinyasa approach. So that's been relatively well documented. But I would say that, that his teachings on Kundalini are perhaps one of the most distinctive of his more sort of esoteric teachings about the philosophy. So many people teach that Kundalini is a sort of dormant energy that lies at the base of the spine and through yogic processes, it is released, it rises up to the top of the head, and then the yogi enters into samadhi and is filled with amritam, and various wonderful things happen. In contrast, Krishnamacharya said, no, kundalini does not rise, it certainly does not rise to the top of the head. Kundalini is a blockage which prevents prana from entering the shashamna and rising. So if anything rises and goes to the top of the head, it is prana, it is not kundalini. And he was quite insistent on that. And I think in the tradition that comes after Krishnamacharya, uh, his son TKV Desikachar, who has perhaps had the most influence uh, in the West of, of, his, of Krishnamacharya's later students, TKV Desikachar and his students have often been quite insistent that kundalini does not rise. So they've even claimed that all texts, all texts confirm that Kundalini does not rise. It is prana that rises from Muladhara up to the top of the head, not Kundalini. So it's often sort of presented as a sort of, if you were, a sort of unique selling point of this approach to yoga. And it's sometimes used uh, so sort of to sell this approach to yoga and prove that and prove that this approach to yoga was right and other approaches were wrong. So I've actually challenged that in my book. I've, I've shown overall that there is a textual basis for Krishnamacharya's conceptions of Kundalini, which I can go into more detail about. But there are other texts which, which say other things. So not all texts actually say the same thing, contrary to what is often taught by TKV Desikachar and some of his students. Yeah, there, there's so many, uh, my, my synapses are firing with so many responses. Um, <laughs> both, both, both in the, in the academic brain uh, and also in the experiential brain. Um, but let's, 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 what would be the best? Okay, uh, what are the texts that you look at? Um, that, is there evidence in tradition of what of Krishnamacharya's uh, position is your textual evidence, or is this entirely novel what he's doing? Well, yes, there definitely is textual evidence. So the text that is cited by Krishnamacharya's students as being the most important text on Kundalini, or the clearest and most coherent text, is the Yoga Yamya Valkya. 
So that is definitely a Vaishnava text uh, from something like 14th century. And it overwhelmingly says that Kundalini is a blockage. So, so Kundalini has to be straightened or, or burnt or, or removed before prana can rise. So for the most part, the Yogiyanya Valkya is clear that Kundalini is only a blockage. However, there are some verses that descri describe it as throbbing and, and flashing brightly into the heart. So, so if Kundalini is located at Nabi, which is, it, is, it is in that text, it's at Nabi or near Nabi or, or various phrases that locate it close to Nabi, which is the navel, the navel center. Manipura. Well, yeah, it's not called Manipura. I guess uh, the Yogyanya Valkya maybe has slightly different names from what have become known as the most common names of the chakras. But yeah, it's sort of equivalent. So Nabi chakra at, at the navel is equivalent to Mani Manipura. But then parts, so some of the verses from the Yogyanya Valkya describe Kundalini as flashing forth to the heart. So that's a little bit inconsistent. And there's one verse of the critical edition of the Yogi Yanyavati that describes it as rising to the top of the head. So that's only in certain manuscripts. And I show in my book how, how certain, well, one follower of Krishnamacharya actually didn't tell his readers that he was presenting just one version of the text and actually not presenting the critical edition, which he said he was presenting. So that was to get round the problem of this one, one verse where Kundalini rises to the top of the head. So that's the Yogi Yavalkya. A lot of verses from the Yogi Yavalkya come from a very closely related text, the Vajishta Samkata, which is very similar. It's clearly a Vaishnava text, but it's not, it's not clearly from any one specific tradition. But there's, there's a big section on Kundalini that comes from the Vishishta Sangita. Part of those verses can also be traced to the Padma Sangita. The Padma Sangita is from the Vaishnava tradition of temple priests known as Pancharatra. So Pancharatra is a quite an old tradition of Vaishnava temple priests that goes way back. And they wrote Agama texts. So they weren't the only people to write Agamas. There are Shaiva Agamas as well, and other Vaishnava Agamas, which I might mention in a minute. Uh, but the Agama texts cover really four things. They cover ritual, they cover temple construction, they cover spiritual knowledge, and they cover yoga. Well, the coverage of yoga in these texts is a bit patchy. Uh, some of these Agamas, some of these Pancharatra texts have nothing at all about yoga. Other texts have quite a bit, uh, and others just have little bits and pieces. But there is quite a big passage in the Padma Sanghita, which contains teachings on Kundalini as a blockage only. So that I can trace the Yogi Anivalkya, which Krishnamacharya followed, to the Vashishta Sanghita and then to the Padma Sanghita. There are also other Pancharatra texts that present similar teachings. So the Akhirbhudnya Samhita, which I've translated quite a bit of in my book. Uh, so that contains a passage in one of the chapters where Kundalini is a static 
blockage con uh, located at Narbi. But then in another section, there are inconsistent teachings where Kundalini rises in the production of sounds. So the picture isn't completely consistent. There certainly is textual evidence for Krishnamacharya's position, which goes back to Pancharatra texts, but it's a little bit inconsistent. Is all of the textual evidence for his um, position from a Vaishnava context? As, as far as I can tell, that's so what I. Uh, that's what I. Be certain sections of Pancharatra texts, and then texts like the Vishishta Samhita Yogi Yanyavalkya, which are based upon that. There's also another tradition of Vaishnava temple priests called Vaikanasa, so again South India, and they run quite a big proportion of the of the Vaishnava temples in South India and uh, over over all of India, but mainly South India. And there's a text in that tradition, which I cover in my book, uh, which also uh, describes Kundalini as a blockage. So there's a, there's a transmission of ideas between Pancharatra and Vaikanasa, and I'm not really quite sure where it originated. But a lot of these ideas in Pancharatra seem to come originally from Shaiva Tantra, Kashmir Shaivism. And they've been reformulated uh, when they've been reincorporated into Vaishnava texts. So it, it seems that there's been a, a, a process of reinterpreting going on. So when I first started investigating this topic, I was mindful of the more the, the more frequent description of Kundalini as Shakti. So Shiva and Shakti, the more, more Shaiva approach, where, where Shakti has gone down into Muladhara, stayed there, and then has to reunite with her spouse by rising up the chakras. So when I looked into these Vaishnava approaches, I was wondering, well, is there a similar thing going on with, with Vishnu and Lakshmi? Well, no. The way that the goddess works in Vaishnava traditions is different, to cut a long story short. And various Vaishnava traditions have therefore either ignored the word kundalini altogether and just not used it that described prana and other things as rising but without reference to kundalini or they reinterpret kundalini as a blockage or they reinterpret kundalini as being equivalent to shushumna which i can say a bit more about in the in the sri vaishnava tradition if you like yeah, that makes perfect sense yeah the the curiosity of the reinterpretation uh, to my mind makes perfect sense given that it's uh, in a Vaishnava context. So um, so um, 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 Vishnu and Lakshmi these are these are you know uh, Lakshmi is a consort. Yeah. Right. Um, Kundalini Shakti is can be mythologized as a Parvati or consort, but more often than not, it's mythologized as Durga Amba mythologized as, as, as a, a mother goddess versus a consort goddess. So it makes perfect sense that in the Vaishnava context, um, uh, the feminine principle um, uh, is capped, so to speak. <laughs> Can't rise to the top. <laughs> yeah. um, um, tell us, oh, there's so many questions. Why don't you just tell us about the structure of the book? How's the book structured? 
Okay, well, yeah, when I'm teaching my students academic skills, I always say that the purpose of an introduction is just to make the rest of the, the, rest of the document easier to read. So my introduction is quite brief. I give a bit of background to Krishnamacharya and I get a, give a bit of background to Kundalini. And then I look, uh, I look at how we can really know anything. Uh, I discuss the, the pramanas of so Pratyaksha, Anumana and Agama for how we can know something to, to really invite readers to keep that in their mind as they read the rest of the book. So then when we get into the main part of the book, I have a chapter in the Yogi Anyavalkya and cover some of the things I've just talked about. I have a chapter on other Vaishnava texts, Kundalini and other Vaishnava texts. So that's tracing it to the Vashishta Samhita, Padma Samhita, Ahayabunya Samhita, Bamarnarchana Kalpa Samkita from the Vaikanasa tradition. So that's, that's that chapter. I then go on uh, to talk about the Hatha Pradipika, or what's more commonly known as the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, and ideas on Kundalini that influenced Krishnamacharya from that text, in which he equated Kundalini with the Kleshas. That equation of Kundalini and the Kleshas enabled Krishnamacharya to reinterpret, redeploy Hatha Yoga in the larger context of Patanjali Yoga. So he equated Patanjali Yoga with Raja Yoga, and the Hatha Pradipika says that Hatha, Hatha Yoga prepares the aspirant for the greater Raja Yoga. Well, to Krishnamacharya, Raja Yoga was, was Patanjali. So there's a whole chapter describing about how that, how that equation came about, how the two yogas really became fused into one, how Hatha Yoga techniques became largely used for the purposes of stilling the mind, rather than removing the Kundalini blockage and enabling prana to forcefully rise up. So I think that that's one of the characteristics of the tradition, that it's, it's I guess, a little bit gentler than some other traditions where they're, they're actually trying to force some sort of a, a great eruption of prana up the shashumna spine to the top of the head. That doesn't occur so much in the tradition that I've been taught in. So, so that's, that's one chapter. The next chapter is really quite distinct because I look at claims from two teachers within the tradition that Kundalini represents uh, something evil or it represents uh, avidya asmita. And the other claim is that Kundalini or snakes represent binding. So I look at a number of different texts, not just yoga texts. I, I cover a, a huge range of different texts from different traditions in Hinduism. I think I mentioned a Jain text, but I don't really go into any detail outside of Hinduism. But in a number of different traditions, I argue that snakes, well, snakes can, can either represent something very positive or they can re represent some, something that could be termed as negative but I would say they can represent something that needs to be overcome. So that can be a variety of things, including avidya, it can include pride, uh, pride in one's body, 
the, the pride of the, the serpent of ego, etc. So that really forms a background in, into which Krishnamacharya's conception of Kundalini or the, or the Vaishnava conception of Kundalini can really fit. It, it does fit into that wider stream of thought in which snakes represent something to be overcome. So that's, that's quite a distinct chapter. Uh, another very distinct chapter is looking beyond the Vaishnava Agamas of Pancharatra and Vaikamasa, looking in Sri Vaishnavism, because Krishnamacharya wasn't a Pancharatra and he wasn't a Vaikamasa, but he was a Sri Vaishnava, very much so. It is said that he was actually asked three times to become the pontiff uh, of one of the main ashrams of Sri Vaishnavism in South India. Uh, and he declined to teach Gilga. So I looked at some claims by TKV Deskachar in his translation of the Yogi Yanyavalkya. In his translation of that text, he gives some references from Vedanta Deshika. So Vedanta Deshika lived in the 13th and 14th centuries. He's said to have lived to 100 years old, or maybe 101 years old. Uh, and he's a huge figure in Sri Vaishnavism. And TKV Deskachar gave some quotations from him. So I tried to find these quotations in Vedanta Deshika's texts. And that wasn't an easy task because there's more than 100 texts and some of them are really quite lengthy. Uh, but I do my best to find his ideas about Kundalini in those texts and I don't really find them. What I did find was in a text uh, called these, the uh, Sankalpa Suryodaya, uh, so the dawn of divine will, if you like, which is an allegorical play in which various characters in the play represent spiritual qual qual qualities like Kroda uh, or Viveka, uh, etc. So in that play, uh, towards the very end of it, Vishnu Bhakti approaches and actually says something along the lines of, well, never mind all of this Hatha Yoga. What is the use of meditating on the Nadis, on Kundalini, etc.? It is only by devotion to me that you will attain release. So Vedanta Deshika was actually quite dismissive of Hatha Yoga. And in commentaries on that text, Kundalini was equated with the Shishumna. So Kundalini was interpreted as a Nadi, not a blockage to the Nadi. So I argue in my book that TKV Desikachar actually misrepresented Vedanta Deshika, after whom he was named, incidentally. Uh, he misrepresented Vedanta Deshika, who did not follow the Pancharatra teachings on Kundalini. So I argue that Krishnamacharya's conceptions of Kundalini came from Vaishnava Agamas, not from Sri Vaishnavism. So it's often said that Krishnamacharya was both a traditionalist and a very radical innovator. Well, yes, he was. He went back to the roots of Sri Vaishnava tradition in Pancharatra and Vaikamasa Agama for his teachings. But in doing so, he, reje he rejected mainstream <laughs> Sri Vaishnava teachings, which for centuries had equated Kundalini with the Shishumna. Fascinating. Um, uh, I, I hope that was coherent. 
Uh, well, you've authored the book, so you would be the world's leading expert on answering that question. So yes, definitely. Well, it's it's quite complicated, <laughs> and I took I took a whole I took a whole chapter to go through various texts which cover a related area. So I mean, if you go back to the Sri Bhashya, uh, the the commentary on the Brahma Sutras, then there are verses of that text which actually look at what happens to one after one dies and how the Atman can actually leave the body with an entourage of prana and senses, etc. So there's, there's an awful lot in the Sri Bhashya on that and then on various texts of Vedanta Tadeshika commentating on that. But they follow the Vedic Upanishadic teachings about the Shishumna and prana in the Shishumna. They don't go back to Hatha Yoga teachings, which are found in Pancharatra by Karnasa. So I, I go through a number of a, a number of negative results, if you like, of Vedanta texts that don't say what he was quoted as saying. And then it's only the Sankalpa Suryodaya, which does actually give Vedanta Deshika's position on Kundalini. It's the only text that I can actually find him talking about Kundalini in the sense that we know it uh, as an energy or as a blockage to the Shashamna. He uses the term Kundalini or Kundalini in other contexts, in other texts, usually just to mean snakes in some of some other contexts. You know, it, it makes sense. Does it not make sense that, that he, he's a teacher of yoga? Right, yeah. yoga, yoga. Uh, um, let me put this another way. So I've had the good fortune of meeting, uh, of knowing, and, and working with, and meeting a great number of um, of adepts, of masters of various kinds in the Indian context. And um, from what I can glean, there are adepts who primarily pursue jnana or um, some sort of enlightenment awareness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are those who pursue Shakti, Kundalini, and there are those who pursue both. And so clearly he's teaching yoga uh, in a particular paradigm. Clearly this is, it's not a tantric tradition and, and from what I can glean actually demonizes much of what Tantra has to say about Kundalini. So it makes sense uh, to my mind that, this would be the position or treatment of Kundalini that seems to cohere with his overarching work as a teacher of yoga and the ways in which he was teaching yoga. Would you agree with that? Well, to a large extent, yes. Uh, I would I would question what you said about him rejecting Tantra. So Pancharatra does have quite a lot of Tantra in it. It uses Tantric and Vedic mantras, for, exa- for example and quite unashamedly uses Tantra. That's, that's slightly in contrast to Vaikarnasa, which claims to be non-Tantric. So Krishnamacharya, in his yoga, he did use some Tantric concepts and Tantric devices. So for example, Nyaya, so the, the placement of the fingers at certain points on the Nyasa. Yeah, so, sorry, Nyasa, yes, yes. Uh, sorry. Yes, so... so um... Nyasa, yeah. So, so he did use certain tantric techniques. But there, so um, when I teach intro Hinduism, I, I tend to use the analogy of the tapestry. 
the tapestry. And there are these different strands and they're inseparable insofar as if one goes into a Hindu temple and uh, commissions uh, a priest to do a ritual, they'll be using nyasa, they'll be using bija mantras. Yeah. The, the, the tantric, I mean, arguably even the, the, the prana pratishta of the murti itself, perhaps, who knows? might be influenced by tantric tradition. So there is uh, what we think of as mainstream Hinduism um, uh, exhibits the indelible influence of Tantra. Yeah. Having said that, um, tantric traditions are separate from mainstream Hindu traditions generally or Vaishnava traditions, and they overlap in certain places insofar as he would have been using the Tantra that would have been um, just pedestrian to him growing up in that time, in that context, in that point in history. Yeah. Having, uh, uh, but that influence notwithstanding, clearly he has a very different understanding of Kundalini than any Tantric I've ever met, it seems. Yeah. Well, if that makes sense. Well, yeah, but, but, but <laughs> that may well be the case. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Uh, all I'm really saying is that there is a tradition of Vaishnava Tantra that's largely contained within Pancharatra. I mean, nowadays, Pancharatra are just temple priests, uh, and they're much more interested in temple building and ritual than they are in any of the other traditions of Pancharatra, or they have been until recent times, at least. Uh, Krishna Macharya was very critical of certain Hatha Yoga mudras, for example. He was very, he was very critical of the, the section in the Hatha Pradipika that involves some sort of tantric sex. Uh, he, he was very much against that. He was, a, he, was, he, was, he was against certain techniques. But I would say that, really to put it in a wider context, he was... He was a devotee. His religious tradition was about devotion to Vishnu. So really his, his whole interpretation of the whole of yoga, and certainly particularly of Patanjali, was to reinterpret it in devotional lines. So I, I touch upon that in my book, but I don't go into it in, in great detail. So I think he was hugely influenced by Ramanuja's treatment on yoga. So I would point, I would point listeners to Ramanuja on the yoga by Lester, which I referenced a, a fair bit in one of my chapters. Uh, so that influenced Krishnamacharya an awful lot. His approach to yoga wasn't to achieve kaivalya and completely shut oneself off from the world. His approach to yoga was to become a better devotee, to encourage more devotion, a deeper devotion, to become more fit for devotion. So it was very much reinterpreted in that sense. But not all of his students, not all of his major students, actually were coming from the same place. So TKV Desikachar, as I, as I show in my book from some interviews with him, he didn't believe in, in God. Srivatsa Ramaswamy came from a, a smarter background, which is more to do with Advaita Vedanta rather than Vishishta Advaita Vedanta. So his take on Krishnamacharya's teachings are a little bit different. A.G. Mohan, who I've been taught by more than those of the two teachers, I think he came from a Shaiva background originally, but now he says that 
Uh, he follows Patanjali's tradition more than, more than any other tradition. But what I'm really saying is that not all of the major students of Krishnamacharya shared his religious tradition. I think TKV Desikachar and the institutions founded by him do try to reflect Krishnamacharya's religious traditions to some extent, but that, that isn't complete because different, pre, different people approach Krishnamacharya's yoga coming from different directions. So uh, uh, as, as a Westerner, I mean, I know an awful lot of Westerners who practice in this approach, uh, and I don't think anybody would call themselves a Vaishnava. Uh, I, think, I think a lot of us have been very deeply influenced by yoga teachings, Hindu teachings, without, without actually subscribing 100% to all of the cultural heritage which comes with that. Well, the teachings that his interpretation of the teachings and therefore the teachings that he's offering, yeah. you know, it's, it's, he's part of a lineage. So it's, it's not that the, it's very difficult to grasp in the Western context that the authority of the tradition is um, um, uh, in the person equally, if not more so than in the text. So the teachings that he's offering um, are now a body of interpretation that folks can follow whether or not they adopt uh, Vaishnava theology or, or, or bhakti. But without question, to my mind, um, it's his Vaishnava bhakti that supports, um, you know, it's not the other way around, um, necessitates this interpretation of Kundalini because it, otherwise, how would it fit? How would how, uh, how would you construe the awakening and wielding of personal power with the submission to the power of Vishnu, right? So, so it seems to me that it, it, it's, it's, it's consistent. So whether or not one is um, engaged in Vaishnava devotion, um, the, these teachings seem to be um, um, imprinted <laughs> by said devotion, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I'm just reminded that, that since my book was published, I've actually been contacted by somebody in Chennai who did the, the yoga teaching uh, qualification of the Krishnamacharya Yoga Mandaram wrote. And he said that for, for a piece of work that he submitted on that, on that course, he wrote about Krishnamacharya, sorry, he wrote about Kundalini and it was rejected by the senior teacher on the course because it was a Shaiva interpretation of Kundalini. And he was very interested in my book to find out why his ideas were rejected. So, so he was a bit puzzled, you know, well, just because Krishnamacharya was a Vaishnava, why can't, why can't his Shaiva ideas be accepted? Because he was, he was quite convinced by them. So I, I think that there is this Shaiva Vaishnava Tension. Without question. And, and please go on. Sorry, I, I was just going to say that, that, that his, his approach is definitely very consistent with that, as you were saying. Yeah, there's a Shaiva Vaishnava tension that we see in the Hindu world at times. Um, and uh, certainly there are Vaishnava Shakta traditions, uh, Sri Vaishnavism, right? But there's a, it, uh, how do I say? The connection between Shaivism and Shaktism seems to be of a different order of magnitude than the connection between Shaktism and Vaishnavism. And so to my mind, it makes sense with, within a, a Vaishnava theological worldview that where would the awakening of Kundalini fit? 
how would that where would that if 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 the uh, apex of human existence is being purified as a, a full bhakta of Vishnu, mm. where would that fit? That would be a block. That would be an obstacle. So it makes sense to me why within that worldview. It is precisely presented as a block, as an obstacle. Yes. 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 That makes sense so, to me. So within Krishnamacharya's con, uh, conception of Kundalini, then the purpose isn't to awaken and raise Kundalini. The purpose is to kill Kundalini, to eliminate Kundalini, because Kundalini <laughs> is a blockage. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure there i'm sure there has to be a study at some point by yourself or someone else about um gender roles and and sort of you know let's let uh, the feminine principle here is a blockage <laughs> let's just worship vishnu um anyhow um yes I'm, I'm sure you have other work that you're interested in doing but uh, that fascinates me so uh, one of the texts that i primarily study is the devi mahatmya and initially, uh, to my mind, it was Puranic, that it was later used in Tantra traditions. And now more and more, as I read the text, it's clearer and clearer to me that there was Tantric influence in the authorship uh, of the text um, in a number of ways. And, and there's just far too many clues within the text, although it's not talked about overtly, clearly uh, the authors or diviners of the Devi Mahatmya were well aware of, of tantric practice and, and, and um, of, of, of more tantric worldviews, particularly with respect to the rising of Kundalini Shakti. I find fascinating that the, the, the text culminates in the goddess giving two boons to two to, to, uh, sadhakas, uh, a merchant and a king. One gets sovereignty power shakti one gets sovereignty over his kingdom and then it becomes exalted as the manu of the next manvantara the other gets moksha so there's this to mythologize uh, uh the, the supreme power as the one goddess uh she's the goddess of you know bhukti mukti padayani she you know you, whatever you want in the world <laughs> or enlightenment she'll do both she doesn't discriminate uh to her devotees um but in the absence of that sort of understanding, then um, Kundalini or um, anything worldly would be an obstruction to the pursuit of jnana, to the pursuit of knowledge. It makes sense that um, Kundalini is of Prakriti, which ultimately is avidya. So, so there is a certain, there really is a, a, a appropriation notwithstanding uh, and uh, sectarian bias notwithstanding. There is a certain coherence in his view without question. Yeah, um, absolutely. But, but as I've shown in my book, even if we look at the textual tradition of Vaishnavism, there are certain inconsistencies within the texts. So it, it, it's not a completely uniform tradition. It, it, the different Pancharatra Agamas have different, different worldviews, different conceptions of the goddess. So, I mean, if we look at the Padma Sankata, then the goddess doesn't really seem to figure much at all. So it's just Vishnu that has the power to do so. Well, a, well, 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 a goddess, well, but, uh, to my mind, a goddess versus the goddess, uh, a small g goddess, a uh, consort goddess versus yeah, the mother right. of existence, okay. right? And so there is that distinction of whether we're thinking of Kundalini as Parvati or, you know, 
you know, the, the, the Shakti itself, like a Durga sort of yeah, super. So, so I think there's that tension as well that um, the goddess of Vaishnavism is a consort goddess, right. not a mother goddess. That's right, right. But but um, uh, there will there will be there will be certain different conceptions of a goddess as well. I mean, if we look at the Akhirbunya Sankata, then. Shakti has certain divisions of favoring, concealing. So, so the concealing is Tirodana, uh, which I sort of think is related to Kundalini, but it's not very well stated. It's not very well defined. So, so, so the, the goddess can favor, can destroy, can create, can cover, has various different functions. And that, that can actually be traced back to Kashmir and Shaivism, where Shiva has very, very similar functions to the goddess, interestingly, mm. or to a goddess, perhaps I should say. <laughs> so I, I looked at, I looked at the, the whole issue of Sri Lakshmi and the relationship of the goddess, and I didn't really go down that rabbit hole very far in my book, because I thought it would just be really investigating a bit of a dead end. I think I just said something like, you know, the, the conception of, of the goddess or our goddess in Vaishnavism is a bit different to in Shaivism. And I, I gave some references and just left it at that, because that's that's a that's a whole other line of line of inquiry that I hope some scholars will actually follow up and relate that back to what I've written what I've written about Kundalini. Well, you've got to leave some work for some other people too, right? <laughs> Well, I mean, just look at the Akhir is an absolutely massive text. So, so there was a Japanese scholar who translated the first few chapters of that. But, you know, we're, we're talking about massive volumes full of Devanagari Sanskrit, and there's, there's enough for several PhDs in that text alone. So I hope that other scholars will actually go back and translate the section on, on favouring, the, 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 the goddess favouring the aspirant. Mm. It's Anu, Anubhava, I think it is from Anubhava. Yeah. Um, so then, is this a line of thought that you're pursuing? Do you have ideas for a subsequent um, article or book, or are you have you sated your intellectual curiosity in Krishnamacharya, or you know uh, what's the next step for you in terms of research? Okay, well, well, the first step is just to breathe a sigh of relief because this has taken about eight years to write in my spare time. <laughs> And I'm just pleased to be refamiliarizing myself with the concept of weekends. So <laughs> I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just pleased to have finished what, I, what I've written for now. Yeah, of course. So I, I guess first and foremost, before, before being a sort of part-time moonlighting scholar, first and foremost, I'm a practitioner. So I'm still practicing yoga. I still consider myself to be part of this broad tradition as taught by TKV Desika Chair, so, so that's really where I'm coming from in terms of my yoga practice, and I will continue. But I'm, I'm going through a process of re-evaluating my relationship to yoga, because I think yoga, as it's taught to us, very much is a sort of package of practices and beliefs that we're meant to take on wholesale. And coming at it from somebody who's not a Hindu and growing up in England, then 
how, how do I relate to that tradition? How much of that do I really want to accept wholeheartedly? Um, and how much do I just want to put to one side? So I'm reevaluating my relationship to yoga. And I think writing the book has really put me in a different place, but I still remain committed to the tradition. And I want to make it clear that I hugely respect Krishnamacharya. I hugely respect his son, TKV Deskachar, despite the criticisms of some of the mistakes that I've identified in my book. I greatly respect Deskachar. I greatly respect A.G. Mohan and Shivatsa Ramaswamy as well. So I'm, I'm still remain committed to practicing in that broad tradition. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure what I'm going to be pursuing in the future. I mean, I'm still going to be continuing with my Sanskrit. I'm translating some things from the Mahabharata just to keep my hand in. Uh, and I'm still interested in the topic of Kundalini and Maybe if I write something in the future, then it would be perhaps scholarly, but slightly less formally academic. And I'll give, give a few more... Practitioner perspectives. Well, practitioner perspectives and personal perspectives. Uh, yes, more yes, than, yes. More than I've done in this book. Perhaps. Yes. But I'm, I'm not really quite sure. It, it largely depends upon the reaction to this book. Well, you'll um, it'll you know once you once you have a child, you one doesn't typically think of conceiving the, the same month <laughs> <laughs> or, or year for that matter. <laughs> so so there's time. One you know there, there's time. It'll it'll evolve, and uh, the reception of the book will be what it'll be. And um, uh, you'll typically hear from critics more than admirers. That's just the way it is. <laughs> there are people who enjoy it will just enjoy it in silence. <laughs> I've been trolled by a Hindu nationalist on Facebook, so but we'll see how much more of that comes. Well, well, there's um, it's a delicate time, you know. One of the things I love about this, but the New Books Network in general, is that it aims to to reach a broader public with uh, research findings. And anyone who's listened to this podcast for any amount of time realizes that I don't take sides, I don't critique books. My, my dharma, as I see it, is to host. A guest and to um, have them help me showcase what the book is doing on its own terms. What are the merits of the book? There are plenty of other spaces for critical engagement and, and there's plenty of V yoga in the world, but some yoga is what drives me. And so um, I'm sure people will find great value in the book without question. Um, why don't you answer this question before I, I, I put words in your mouth? Who might most be interested in this book? Who might most benefit from reading this book? What sorts of subfields or interests might they have? Okay, well, I, I would hope that it would have quite a wide audience. Uh, so I think academics who are interested in the history of yoga, uh, modern yoga, Hatha yoga, Tantra, Sri Vaishnavism, they, they might find it interesting. But I would also hope that a lot of yoga practitioners yoga teachers and their students would be interested in this. Because it's, it's the first book-length academic study of any of Krishnamacharya's teachings. And although it's academic, I've tried to make it accessible for a wider audience. So I would hope, I would hope that they would be interested. And from, from the reaction that I've had so far from my contacts, then there does seem to be quite a lot of interest. We'll have to see We'll have to see how far that goes. 
not everybody wants to read an 80,000 word uh, academic book. Uh, but I would hope... Which is, why, which is why they listen to this podcast and said, and then decide if they want to dive in, but, but go on. <laughs> well, yes, ho- ho- hopefully a number of them will have, will have survived uh, 54 minutes of the podcast and will, be, and will be already searching on the internet to see where they can buy the book. Uh, but yeah, so I-, I think yoga students, academics, hopefully will be interested. I hope that Sri Vaishnavas will be open and interested in an external view of their tradition. Uh, also, there's a, a small number of people who are interested in, interested in the concept of snakes, of nagas, and the, and the symbolism of snakes. So, so there'll be a small number of people who are interested in that side of it. But I would, I would, I would expect that academics of yoga, yoga studies, Hinduism, would be one particular group, and yoga practitioners, yoga teachers, would be another group. Fascinating. So um, is there anything else about the book that you hoped we touch on today? Uh, oh, that's a good question. I only ask a question. I'm kidding. Uh, I often ask fairly, fairly, fairly naive sounding. Sometimes I wonder if my audience thinks I'm a blithering idiot. So what's your book about? So what's your data? But no, um, I ask questions to generate <laughs> some sort of conversation. But is there other elements well, of the book that you hope we touch on or well, your method? Well, well okay. There, there, was, there was something that I mentioned a little bit earlier when I was talking about the introduction. So I, I said in the introduction that according to yoga and Sankhya and Sri Vaishnavism, then there are three main ways of knowing something. So that's pratyaksha, which is experience, direct experience, anumana, which is inference, logic, and then agama, agama. testimony from a teacher or testimony from a text. Now, in those traditions of Patanjali, Sankhya, and Sri Vaishnavism, at least in theory, then more, more influence, more weight is given to the, to the direct experience than to testimony from texts. But as I show in my book, then the overwhelming amount of arguments that are given within the tradition come from texts. So what I really do in my conclusion is that I, I challenge that weight of emphasis put on texts and call for a re-evaluation. And I end up by concluding that Krishnamacharya's view of Kundalini actually is coherent within a certain range of texts, but ultimately it's a model for experience. So I regard it not so much as, a, as an ontological model, a model for how things are in the universe and in our bodies, in our minds, in our psyches, but it's more a model for experience. So I finished by saying that perhaps its usefulness can actually be evaluated more in terms of how well it describes experience and guides practice rather than how well it is rooted in traditional texts. Yes, fascinating. So, so it seems clear to me both, both as a scholar and as an adept in various traditions that uh, indicate philosophy, for lack of a better word, is um, oriented towards the experiential. And the, uh, the ideation on, on uh, um, ontology or concepts is meant only as a, 
um, an appetizer, if you will, as to whether or not you want to bite into the main course for yourself, sort of entice you. Like this, this is, you know, to have a certain amount of, 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 of faith, a certain amount of, um, you know, if, if someone's presenting a coherent worldview and it makes sense to you, you'd be more inclined to adopt a practice from that tradition, for example. And so the experiential is, you know, that's what it's all about. Obviously, as scholars, we're, we're, we deal in the empirical. I mean, in certain spaces, you know, what I do in, in certain teaching spaces is I try to dovetail the two of the empirical and the experiential because it, it, it's crucial to my mind. But what, what I'd like to do, I, I really like um, what you just said, and I'd like to connect it to something I was alluding to before that I was trying to say before, that um, for those who experience and seek to experience Kundalini, it's abundantly clear that it arises through their being. It's palpable. But for those who are not seeking that experience, Kundalini is a distraction to the experience they're seeking. You see, so the so the so the it, it makes perfect sense that the uh, that that the experience that's being sought is the driving force of you know the scaffolding. Uh, the philosophical scaffolding of, of the tradition, if that makes sense. Right, but, but if you look at some of the more modern literature, say the book on Kundalini by Lisa Nella, uh, there are various people who have certain experiences which they conceptualize in terms of Kundalini. So they, they may or may not be actually searching for that experience looking for that experience, trying to have that experience, it may just happen accidentally while they're doing something else. What I mean to say is, is yes, absolutely. Without question, people can have an experience that looking for it. But if one is looking for a northern direction, one will block out everything to the south and vice versa. Yeah. What I'm saying is that in certain situations, when one is looking for a particular experience, one will sideline what blocks that or view as a blockage view that as a blockage that experience so if one is pursuing jnana and all phenomenal experiences are ultimately whatever system you want to use prakriti or avidya then kundalini would fall in that umbrella that makes sense under that umbrella yeah yeah we can have perceptual filters that, that rule out things that don't fit in without with our vision i guess yeah, um, I do mention something along those lines in my conclusion. Yeah. Yes. So, if there was one, well, maybe one and a half or two, if there were a couple of uh, main takeaways you hope folks would have from this research, what would it be? Okay. Well, uh, I guess one main takeaway would be let's have a little bit of humility. Rather than trying to insist that our tradition is the best tradition and everybody else has got it wrong, let's just present Krishnamacharya's teachings as one very valuable take on Kundalini, rather than the only perspective that one can have. So it's one view, one perspective, and a perspective that I very much understand now and respect, but there are other perceptions as well. So I, I guess that, that would be one of my, my take home messages that I would want people to, to really have. 
let's be a little bit more humble about presenting these ideas because you know it's complicated and esoteric stuff when we're talking about kundalini and chakras let's not insist upon one interpretation as being the only one which can have any sort of validity those who insist in my view are those who have a mental construct thereof and not the experience those who have the experience thereof understand that the experience can be interpreted in a variety of ways pardon the interruption please proceed no, that's that's very good. I couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, it's it's what I do. Anyhow, go on. I, I would also say that those who insist may have an agenda driven by ambition rather than driven by other things, perhaps. So so yeah, I would I would hope that people within the tradition would be a little bit more humble and say, look. Uh, this is only one perspective. There are other perspectives that come from other yoga traditions. So, so let's not insist that this is the only correct uh, interpretation. So yeah, if there's just one message to, to come from my book, then I hope that that will be it. Lovely. Um, all right, I think we'll close for today then. Um, I'll, I'll sign off formally and then we can chat a couple minutes after I sign off. Um, Thank you for appearing on the podcast today. Thank you very much, Dr. Balkan. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. You're most welcome. Um, for those of you listening, we've, of course, been speaking with Dr. Simon Atkinson on his uh, brand new Equinox publication, Krishnamacharyan Kundalini, The Origins and Coherence of His Position. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, keep listening, keep reading, keep contemplating the power of Kundalini Shakti. And... Uh, Feel free to study with me online at courses.rajbakran.com. Take care.